All right, let's go Psalm 57. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would invite you to try to find one real quick. Uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a moment. If you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that point in our, in our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would actually love to fix that. We'd love to give you one. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want you to, to have your entire life and the way you see the world shaped by Him and by knowing Him and by walking in relationship with him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to uh, do that in you, to get you to that point, then, then it's a smart move on our part to put Bibles in people's hands and come up with you know, clever ways of getting, them to, getting people to read them all the time. And so if you don't have a Bible that you can call your very own, uh, talk to me after we're done here, whether uh, in person or in the comment section. You can uh, just get a hold of me, and I'd love to fix the no Bible issue. we got a bunch around here that we like to give away. Um, so we are making a dedicated effort throughout the month of September. I already alluded to this this morning, uh, to, to dive as deeply as we possibly can into the Psalter, into, uh, into the book of Psalms. And, and man, I think God has blessed that so far. I, I know we got a little more ways to go, uh, but I think God has blessed it. It stretches us uh, just a little bit, or, or maybe at least it stretches me just a little bit uh, to kind of bury ourselves in a genre of Scripture that, that I don't know about you, but for me, I don't, I don't typically run to. Uh, it's, not, it's not what I'm, I'm naturally inclined to lean into on the, uh, during the rough moments. I, I want logic. I want uh, flow of thought. I want flow of action. Uh, and so I enjoy the historical narratives, and I enjoy the epistles because they tell you to do stuff, and I like a to-do list, right? And so the Psalms don't really give you that, um, and so, uh, but it, it's good for my heart, maybe it's good for your heart to kind of lean into to the Psalms this month and this, uh, this morning, all those kinds of things, and, and, and a lot of Scripture, a lot of Scripture is just kind of at home in the logical flow. All right, that tends to be what we think of when we think of our favorite passages in the Bible, or the ones that have 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 shaped us the most. And I tend to be the more cerebral type. Maybe you are too. I enjoy and feel like I thrive in logical flow. And uh, but the Psalms, man, they just they just don't give you that. They're they're not trying to give you that. That. All right. It's not that it's not that logical flow isn't present in the Psalms. They're just. It's just secondary. It's on the back burner compared to its actual aim. Whether whether you want to uh, whether you want to talk about the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job or Song of Solomon, uh, it just it, they aim for wisdom more than the to do list. And then the one that everybody's the most familiar with, the Psalms. The Psalm writers, man, they invite you into experiencing the heart. And I would say the struggle of God's people as they attempted to live, as they attempted to follow him. And, and we've said it a few times over the course of this month now. Sometimes they get it right. And sometimes God's people get it very, very wrong, right? It's like epically wrong. It, it, it's spectacularly wrong. But whether right or wrong, it's always real. It's always real. Whether, whether they're on top of the mountain or they're walking in the valley of the shadow of death, right? They're, it's, all, it's always genuine. It also, the Psalms, they sound a lot more like our own heart than I think we would usually prefer to admit out loud. Am I wrong about that? Like sometimes we look at the Psalms and go, what's that guy thinking? But then there's other times where we're like, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, that, that was last week. 
I know exactly what that guy is going through. Really big highs, really deep lows, and a whole bunch of grand sweeps in between. So no matter what personality type you are, uh, despite however put together you might pretend or like to believe that you are, we all have these moments where, we, where praise explodes out of us and, and it just can't be contained. And we, we also have these other moments where we're not really sure which way is up. We're not really sure which way is forward. And so we cry out, right? I got a bunch of those moments. And so we said a few weeks ago that, that maybe God pre- preserved the Psalms for us because we're not really any different from his people all those years ago. A lot of highs, and a whole bunch of lows, a whole bunch of grand sweeps in between. We might think that we're put together, but then there's all these times we don't like to talk about, right? And disciplining ourselves to, to chase deeply here could actually serve us well for when we realize we're in one of those not-so-put-together moments. So we positioned ourselves this morning to look more closely at Psalm 57. You ready to dig into it? Good. I'm glad you're ready. All right. So we're going to start with the superscript, right? So just like the last couple of weeks, uh, some of your translations may actually have what's known as the superscript here uh, as verse 1. Whether those verse headings, those came later on in the game. Uh, But the superscript is original. It's a part of the text. We're going to treat it like a superscript separate from verse 1. But either way, it's all all there. So let me read it together. Uh, Superscript. Uh, To the choir master... According to do not destroy a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. All right, so uh, there, there seems to be more and more and more going on in the superscript each week as we go along, right? Have you noticed that trend yet? Like, like we started several weeks ago and it was just like a psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph or a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now we're adding layer upon layer upon layer into these little superscripts. Uh, and so we've got a bunch of, to, a bunch of stuff to parse through uh, yet again. But there's two names that should stand out there to everybody in the room. David and who? Saul. So I told you last week that David... He's attributed with about half-ish of the Psalms. Uh, there's, a lot, there's some debate on that, and it's healthy debate. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's just good lay level to go uh, about half, all right? And so David's attributed with about half of the Psalms. And, and there's a reason that he's the guy you just kind of naturally are inclined to think of when you start thinking of the Psalter. He's the guy you want to associate with the Psalms. Uh, and so if you don't know your Bible very well, though, the second guy, Saul, he was the king of Israel before David. So we've got a little bit of a king one, king two kind of dynamic going on here, right? Do you think they get along? Even if you don't know the Bible very well, you kind of kind of already assume that maybe they don't get along, right? Yeah. But while those two guys are easy to decipher, it gets a little squirrely in the middle there on the superscript. There's a lot of things that are, that are going on. According to do not destroy, what's that about? Well, there's actually a pretty good bit of debate. There, there are four different psalms uh, where, where the phrase is, this phrase, do not destroy, is mentioned. Psalm 57, Psalm 58, Psalm 59, which, so you got this little cluster right here, and then later on in Psalm 75. And some commentators argue that it's a personal name. In fact, they plant their flag right there. Uh, John Calvin, uh, from several hundred years ago, he's in the group of people that say, yep, that's a personal name. And like... Like, if you don't know church history, that's a good guy to have in your camp and to make your argument sound really good. A personal name. The Hebrew uh, there is just, for that whole line, do not destroy, it's just a singular word, al And so, 
it wouldn't have been uncommon at all in their culture to have somebody named Al-Tashef. That, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable explanation for things. Also, the words according to don't exist in the Hebrew. That's placed in by translators in order to make it make sense in English. And so it doesn't say according to, it just says to the choir master, Al-Tashef, do not destroy. And so some people see that as listing the name of the choir master figure. Hey, the choir master has a name, right? Like, like in the other, in, in, to the choir master, Altashev. And if that's true, then we've just kind of unlocked a mystery that's been hidden to us for the last couple of weeks, right? Haven't we for the last couple of weeks been like, to the choir master, we don't know who this guy is. That, that's kind of the, the ball game that we had to play. And so the title of choir master has been referenced several times now over the last couple of weeks, and we didn't know who their name was. And so some argue that that's exactly what's going on here. We finally have revealed the name of the choir master. And so that leads some translations to just transliterate the word, and they usually capitalize it. The King James does this, if you have one of those, if you prefer that translation. The problem, I think, though, with that theory is that the method used to arrive at that conclusion, it doesn't work with several other psalms in the Psalter. Um, JB read a moment ago Psalm 56. You remember that? It, it was just a couple minutes ago, right? Um, that one starts out to the choir master according to the dove on far off terebinths. Same deal. According to, not in the Hebrew. It's inserted later. And so either, either we change the name of the choir master it's a different person, and that person also kind of has a really poetic name, right? Do not destroy to the dove on far-off terebinths. You've got some classy guys leading the choir, right? Either we have a different choir master figure with a different name, and that person has an also incredibly poetic name, or there's maybe another way that we should probably look at this. Who thinks it's option B? I think it's option B, too. And so the theory goes that these songs are set to already established tunes. Songs they would have known already. In other words, Psalm 57 seems to be set to a tune of another song that's called Do Not Destroy. And our older saints in the room will already kind of be familiar with, with this practice. Hymnals used to do this all the time. Uh, if you're, there will often be several songs in a hymnal that can be played in, in multiple keys, right? And so you'll go to this song, and you'll love this song, but it maybe it's just a little too high for your group, all right? And so you'll see the little note in there that says, for this tune in another key, turn to number such and such. And you'll, the instrumentalist will flip back to, to that psalm, and even though the words are completely different, it's the same tune, and everybody in the room is blessed by it, right? And so we're told Psalm 56 seems to be set to a, a, a tune called the dove on far-off terebinths. Psalm 22, uh, uh, one, of, uh, one of the favorites for a lot of people in here, is, is we're told is according to the doe of the dawn. And there are several other examples of this throughout the Psalter. Right, so I, I really think, I, I'd love to plant my flag in a, this is according to a song, Do Not Destroy. We're also told that it's a mictam. So what in the world is a mictam? Sounds like a weird drug, like, a, like something you got to take if your stomach is just kind of in knots. Mictam. Well, we like to say every week, it seems now, that we don't know. We don't know what mictam means. Uh, it, it's used a whopping six times in the Bible, right? Anytime something is used only six times in the Bible, we just don't know. Uh, a mictam. And so... All of those six times are used in descriptions for psalms just like this one. 
We, Psalm 56 was a miktam. Psalm 57 is a miktam. But even though, uh, so we, we don't really, really know. But again, like we seem to say every single week, the way that it's used causes us to believe that it's probably some kind of musical notation. That it tells us what style the song is to be played in. The root in the Hebrew sometimes means cover. And it sometimes means to inscribe. But which one of those it is in this moment, we don't know. No. How that affects the psalm that's about to play out, maybe, I don't know. But even though we're lost on what the song might have sounded like, we are told this week about the occasion of its writing. What does it say? We're told that it's when David fled from Saul, where? In the cave. So if you don't know the story, maybe you're new to church, maybe new to the Bible, and, and maybe new to the Old Testament, whatever it is. If you don't know the story, David is constantly running from Saul. Constantly running from Saul. But there, there are two times in that story that a cave comes into play. 1 Samuel 22 and 1 Samuel 24. Most scholars will take this psalm and apply it to the situation in 1 Samuel 22 when David is hanging out at a cave called Adullam. Or that's the way I pronounce it. Maybe you pronounce it differently. Adullam. Saul wants to kill David because, I mean, newsflash, reigning kings don't really like it when the next guy in line for the throne is just running around all over the place. Makes him a little squirrely. Makes him a little nervous, right? And so David is on the run. Um, His life is literally in danger here. Saul wants David out of the picture, and David skedaddles, right? And, And we're told that this psalm is written while David and his boys are laying low in the cave. They're running for their lives, right? And so an appropriate question this morning, I think, would be, what would be on your heart in that moment, right? If you're the guy on the run, if you're David, if you're one of the boys running off with David, right, if you're hiding in the cave in that moment while everything is falling down, while the powers that be are trying to end you, right, if you are quiet in the dark in the cave, what's on your heart in that moment? Like, what does worship look like for you? What do you sing on that day? Because David has a song. He writes a worship song. While David is on the run, while David is hiding in the cave, David writes a worship song. And start in verse 1. It says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So David cries out to God for help, right? Like, would you do any different? I don't think I would do any different. Be merciful to me, he says. And then he doubles down. Be merciful to me. You know somebody really means something when they repeat themselves, right? That's how you know they're serious. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. He talks about Saul's murderous rage as if it's some kind of storm of destruction. And so he asked God to, to shelter him under his wings. And what a picture that is, right? Like, like think of a, a mama bird protecting her chicks. 
That, that's the, the imagery that, that David used here to talk about refuge in God, to talk about safety and security and rest. That's the, the image that he's painting for us. This is a moment that probably every single follower of Jesus has had at some point or other in their life. A, a scary moment when, when things are dangerous, when, when things are outside of your control, when things are falling apart around you, and so you cry out to the one that you believe can actually do something about that problem, right? It's a, it's a problem that every single one of God's people have had. We've all had those moments. Uh, uh, back during our Habakkuk series, we talked about how that moment is kind of necessary. That it shows where our lordship lies. It shows where our, our sense of salvation lies. And so David has a bunch of those moments. If you read through David's story, man, his, his life is full of those moments. What's interesting to me, though, what's really interesting to me is that if you know the story of David running from Saul, if you know how 1 Samuel 22 plays out, then you know that this isn't one of those moments. This is not one of those the world is falling apart moments. This is not, oh no, I'm in a lot of trouble, please help me moments. Yes, David is on the run right now. There's a reason he's in the cave, but if you follow along the story of 1 Samuel, by the time you get to chapter 22, something has changed. David has moved from simply running to being emboldened. A change has occurred in him, and people begin flocking to him while he's at the cave. Everybody knows where David is. David's not hiding. He's just separated right now. His family comes to him at one point before he sends them off to somewhere safer. The down and out begin to flock to him. The oppressed begin to flock to him. Those with debt begin to flock to him. Those with distress begin to flock to him. Uh, we're told that, that he actually begins to gather an army. He's got 400 men gathering to him. David is growing in power and he's growing in strength. And Samuel tells us that he is establishing an army while he is at that cave. In fact, the word that Samuel uses to describe the cave that David is in, in chapter 22, is a stronghold. You're not really scared in the stronghold. You're not shaking in your boots. Yes, Saul is a mighty man of war. He was king explicitly for the reason of being taller than everybody else and being good at fighting battles. Right? If you know the story of King Saul's elevation, like he, he is the king because he was a better fighter than everybody else. And so, yeah, Saul was a mighty man by that point. But the entire nation of Israel has been singing for years by the time we get to this story. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Everybody knows who David is. Saul was certainly a scary dude, but... David is the guy that was tasked by this point of going and collecting uh, proof of killing a hundred Philistines for the price of marrying Saul's daughter. And so he decides to just double up and bring 200 to show how awesome he is. David is not a weakling here. David is the stronger man. David's not scared. 
I promise you, he can go toe-to-toe with Saul. So, so why then would David cry out for mercy from God in this moment? Because David knows who actually holds his future. It's not Saul. And even though it sounds better, it's not David. God holds his future. This is one of several rubber meets the road kind of moments where David seems to earn the title a man after God's own heart. Even though David has on multiple occasions by this point held the opportunity to take Saul's life and to take the throne that rightly belongs to him, even though he will have many more of those opportunities to come down the line in the future, those of you who know your Bible will already know why he won't do that. What is it? He won't touch God's anointed, right? Yes, the the throne has been promised to him, but he refuses to sit on it until the exact moment that God actually hands it to him. It's not up to David to speed that moment along. It's not up to David to make that moment get here any faster. It's in God's hands, and so David's going to keep his hands off. Even though he is as mighty as the man who is currently chasing him, and even as he assembles his army at Adullam, David refuses to put his hope and his trust in anything other than God's merciful hand. He won't go there. But mercy isn't the only word David repeats. He also drops the word refuge a couple of times. Refuge is it's about safety, but a rest in that safety. It's, it's more than just safehood. It's more than just safety. It's, it's a deep and abiding rest in that Safety. David finds his protection in the hands of the Lord, and David finds his rest in exactly the same place. But David isn't done. Verse 2. <laughs> We're only at verse 2. I gotta hurry up. I cry to I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Verse 3, he will sin from heaven and save me, and he will put to shame him who tramples me, Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. All right, so God most high is is used all throughout the Old Testament to point to and to to celebrate God's sovereignty, his, his rule and his reign over his creation. So regardless of whatever King Saul thinks that he's going to accomplish, the actual king, he's going to fulfill his purposes for David. There's not a debate about this. It's not up in the air. We're not waiting to figure out how the things land. No, the one who sovereignly sits on the throne of the cosmos, he's going to do exactly what he wants to do, regardless of what little old Saul thinks about the situation. The cave, it's not going to slow God down. But you, you think raging Saul can trip up God most high? Are you kidding me? Please. No, in fact, David seems to, to indicate here that not only will God save David if God wants to, but he will also put David's enemies to shame for their effort. And then David drops a Selah, just like the mic hits the floor. Selah. Rest here. 
dwell deeply on this. Stop whatever you are doing right where you are and dwell on this truth. Let it soak all the way down to the marrow of who you are, the sovereign one. The Lord most high has always been in control and he will always be in control. And so don't you forget it. You think that little old Saul can do a single thing to slow God down? Not a chance. There's not one thing he can do that will go against God's will. Not one thing. If God wants to preserve David, he will be preserved. There's nothing Saul can do about it. And if God doesn't want to preserve David, there's nothing that Saul doesn't need to do a thing. It's not up to Saul. Make no mistake about it, the Lord is in control and he won't even break a sweat doing what he pleases. He will accomplish his purposes for David. He will accomplish his purposes for you and me. And why can we trust him to do that? Because our God is the faithful one, we're told. He is full of steadfast love for his people. You and I may struggle with faithfulness, but God doesn't. Not for a moment. You, you and I may be weak, but God's not. He will accomplish his purposes and no one and nothing can slow him down. Look at verse four. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse five, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So you got lions and you got fiery beasts and teeth made out of spears and arrows. That's a fun picture. Who's looking forward to that day? It's all pretty terrible sounding stuff, to be sure. Maybe even scary. But we also have a God who is incredibly passionate about his own glory. He's, he's not going to let that be tarnished by being lazy in this moment. He's not going to let that be tarnished by being outgunned or outclassed. He's okay. He will accomplish his purposes. And we can rest in that protection, that promised protection. And we can rest in that provision precisely because he will exalt his name over all the earth. Bank on it. It will be seen and celebrated by, all, uh, by his people and it will be spread unto the ends of the earth. He will be exalted. And then verse 6 happens. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. You ever found yourself in a moment where you watch something meet its natural conclusion? Like, like good things do that, and then sometimes really funny negative things do that. that like you just kind of watch somebody get their comeuppance. The thing finally clicked home. It's just a satisfying moment, right? Yeah, you're watching it play out, and it's like, that's going to end badly. That's going to end badly. Oh, I don't think they know this, so that's going to end badly. And then it ends totally badly. That's a good moment. Or, or, am I, or am I the only sinner in the room? I love that moment. I love that moment. Just a brief moment of justice in a broken world. Think to yourself, yeah, that's exactly what needed to happen there. Glad they learned their lesson. 
David here, he sees the trap being set. He's watching them work. He sees all the effort his enemies are putting in to ensnare him, and he's sitting back, and he's waiting. It's going to end badly. It's going to end badly. They don't know it yet, but it's going to end badly. They're going to end up being their own victims. Selah. <laughs> Rest in this. Dwell deeply in this. So satisfying. Confidence in the Lord leads even to a sort of joy here, it seems. <sighs> a sigh. Yeah, that's exactly how that needed to play out. But that's not all, at least. You look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. We repeat ourselves again. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. All right, so, so David has moved now all the way into praising God in this moment. Like, isn't he supposed to be shaking in his boots in a cave? Like, isn't that what we thought that this started out as? He's, he's celebrating here. He's singing here and praising. There's an explosion of celebration here. Grab the harp. Get, grab the lyre, boys. Let's strike up the band. It's time to sing. The hope that we're dealing with here, it's not some flimsy, fragile nonsense. I mean, the world is full of that kind of stuff. I'd call it garbage. They can keep it. This is the kind of hope that unapologetically dances in the street. Our world is full of all kinds of false bravado and false celebrations over things that are nothing but facades. But David here, he's, he's moved to a celebration that even while he's in the cave, even while there's a real threat to his life, it's time to strike up the band. That celebration of praise doesn't stop with David. Look at verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I tell you all the time around here that God's plan to draw the nations to himself is a whole Bible reality. Over and over again, that's what we see. It's not just something that emerges in Matthew 28 when Jesus commissions his, his boys on a hillside. It's not a fun little project for Jesus' people to be a part of. This is the stated aim from the very beginning of the redemption story. I will be exalted among the nations. We see it play out again here. Yes, yes, God made a special covenant with one people, the Jews, but even as he is making that covenant with them, he's also making a promise for the Gentiles. If you know your Bible well, uh, Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, right? It's a whole Bible reality. David is and he's just responding to God's glory exactly how God has always wanted his people to respond to his glory. It's the natural playing out of things. You respond by telling everyone else you can find about it. Never shutting up. By celebrating with song and 
with shouts of praise and with an eye towards those who don't know him yet explodes out of David. He says, let your glory, God, be over all the earth. When you find yourself in the cave, is that what comes out of you? When you find yourself in the moment where you're, you're threatened and you may be on the run and things aren't going as well as you thought they probably would by now, when you find yourself in the moment where your life might actually be in danger, when something that belongs to you is being withheld from you, when you find yourself in the cave, is this what comes out of you? Yes, cry for God to be merciful in the middle of the storm, but that cry does its birth out of a confident rest. A confident rest. Why? Because you decided a long, long time ago that the only place your hope could ever be found is in the Lord. You may have the ability to go get it yourself. A lot of people do. At least they think they do. Regardless of however you see yourself, have you made the decision that there's only one, one thing to chase? One thing to pursue? Is He the only one who can shelter you from the storm? Forget about what you think you can do. Forget about how mighty you think that you are. For the glory of His name, can you honestly answer this question? Can you patiently wait for God to fulfill His sovereign purposes for you like David? Can you, regardless of whatever might come from His good hand, can you explode with joyous celebration because of who he is and what he is doing. When you find yourself in the cave, is this what comes out? Because that's what comes after the man who gets the title, a man after God's, God's own heart. I think I want that for me. Do you? Just to be honest, I... I don't think that's what naturally comes out of me. But I want it. David gets a lot wrong, but I think he gets this one right. I want to be more like him in this moment. If I'm in David's shoes, I tend to puff up my chest in this moment and want to show the world how capable I am of fighting things off and fighting my way out. But Go take what's been promised to me. So maybe the Psalms aren't just for our not-so-put-together moments. Maybe they're also for all the times that we think we have it put together. Maybe they're deeper and bigger and more beautiful than that. So what do we do with this, right? <laughs> How in the world do you respond to God's Word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, we, we do, your response is the same thing that we say every single week. We, we repent of sin and we lean into his goodness. And, and I get it. That, that, man, that feels harder to do when you're on the run. It, it does. I know it does. But man, the Bible seems to show us over and over and over again that there's an otherworldly rest there. There's an indescribable refuge in the storm there. 
a rest to be found in God's protection and a rest to be found in God's provision. You can trust him because he will be exalted. He will establish and fulfill his sovereign purposes. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for you to respond to, to God's word and put action to what he's stirring in your heart. Now, I'll, I'll be down front here for those who are in the room and want to talk about something. Uh, if you're watching us online, you can use the comment section or, or the contact form. Man, I'd love to, to be helpful to you in that moment. Yeah, uh, I'd love to, to walk with you as you figure out what that response of faith looks like. But listen, maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe he's calling you to, to, to be obedient in baptism. Or maybe he's calling you to join this church family or, or, or step out in some form of service. Or maybe he's calling you to say yes to that call of missions that he's laying out in front of you to walk in. So, it, 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 so whatever God is calling you to, let's, let's do that together as a church family. And listen, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I think he calls you to respond to his word this morning too. And you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that God is holy and that we are all by default separated from this holy God because of our sin. He's not a shelter in the storm for those who don't belong to him. He is the coming storm. We rightly deserve his wrath. We rightly deserve the just and perfect punishment for our sin. But God is also rich in mercy and he loves us with a great love. And he made a way where there was no way. The eternal son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living he died on the cross as a perfect and innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so now he calls on you as the one who conquered sin and death, the king of glory. He calls on you to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord in repentance and faith. And you can do that today. You can, you can turn to Jesus. You don't need me to do that, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front. Use the comment section, whatever you got. However God is calling you to respond to his word today, let's do that as a church family together right now. Father, thank you so much for the Psalms. Thank you for Psalm 57. Thank you for being the God who is our shelter in the storm. But you're even our shelter, and you're our protection, and you're our provision, even when I think I got it. Even when I want to believe that I'm big enough, and I'm strong enough, and I'm capable enough. I may not have an army, but I've got an attitude. Call me to rest. Call me to to lay down my attempts at fighting my way out and instead trust in your good purposes for me. I need a lot of wisdom to figure out what those things are sometimes. I think you're faithful to give it. As I walk through this world and I, I perceive enemies here and there and elsewhere, would you Help me to see that you're the one who's on the throne. I don't have to worry about the Saul's in my life. 
or even fight against them most of the time. Rather, you've called me to trust and lean into you. Lord, would you help us do that? I cling so tightly to my own ability, and my own ability is, is flawed from, from the start. But you are good, and you are mighty to save, and you call me yours. Show me how to rest in that. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you call them to yourself? Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you came and you died and you rose again to claim a people for yourself. God, we pray that you draw them to you now. Open eyes to see, hearts to know, and ears to hear this morning. and Expand your kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.